As we begin a new sermon series this morning, you see the title there. Um, we, you know, we are marching toward uh, an election in November, and so when you think about politics, uh, several things may come to your mind. I uh, don't know how many of them are good, but they may come to your mind different ways. But you know, just imagine going downtown Augusta, asking people, just tell me what you think about politics. You know, what kind of what kind of feedback would you would you receive? Well, someone did an interview similar uh, in a different place, but it was a similar interview. And they approached random people and they asked the question, which words would you use to, dis- to summarize politics? And here were some of the responses. Uh, betrayal. Mistrust. Letdowns. Corruption. Lies. Red tape. Bureaucracy. Governance. Leadership. People going on television at night arguing, campaigning, democratic, biased, probably not trustworthy. It's about representation of people and individuals, about communities. One man said, to my mind, lying is the first thing, not true to what they say. And one woman said, just a lot of people fighting for power. That's all I think it is. And you know, maybe you can relate to some of those, some of those answers. And, you know, people have a variety of views of politics as well as different levels of interest and involvement. Uh, And this is true both inside and outside the church. But have you ever asked yourself the question, what is the relationship between Christianity and politics? Or have you ever wondered, you know, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you know, how should I engage in the political process Well, as we approach this November election, I thought it would be beneficial for us to try to answer those two questions. And to help me address those questions, I'm going to be leaning on a few authors as well. Uh, I'm leaning on a few books by a man named Bruce Ashford, who is a professor of theology and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, as well as some other resources. And what I'm going to do is, if you're interested in picking up some of these resources, I'm going to post the titles Uh, on our social media pages as well as in our weekly email so you can grab some of those if you'd like to do some additional reading. But this morning I want to begin with a quote as we dive into the, uh, the, the adventure of trying to answer those two questions. Richard John Newhouse once wrote this. He said, culture is the root of politics. Culture is the root of politics and religion is the root of culture. So, culture is the root of politics, and religion is the root of culture. And so what this means is that politics, in his mind, politics, which refers to how we govern our community, collectively, ultimately flows from religion. Now, politics, another way to think about this, politics is is a branch on the tree that is nurtured by the root system of religion. Now, when I use the term religion, I'm not simply referring to the worship of a supernatural deity, even though that is clearly what religion entails as well. Uh, That would qualify religion. But when I say religion, I'm referring to a person's ultimate commitments. When I talk about religion, I'm, I'm referring to what someone ultimately believes about the world. So, your religion, whatever it may be, answers these four questions. First question, where did we come from? 
Second question, what has gone wrong with the world? Third question, what should we do to fix it? And the fourth question is, what does the future hold? The way you answer those questions determines your religion. Whatever your religion may be, whether it's atheism, Christianity, Buddhism, whatever your religion may be, that is how you would answer those four questions. Those are your ultimate commitments. So to go back to the tree analogy, the answers to those four questions that I just mentioned are the root system that will nurture the growth of your culture and how you will engage in public life. And so before we zoom in to the degree we will on policies and candidates, we need to zoom out and think about how does this piece of the puzzle called politics fit into the grander picture or image uh, of life as a whole. And in order to understand the relationship between Christianity and politics, we must first see how Christianity answers those four questions. So, let's start by answering the first question. Where did we come from? You're in the first book of the Bible, in the very first chapter, in the very first verse, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So as Christians, we believe that we're not, uh, we didn't arrive from randomness, but rather we are here because of the creative act of God. We also read that God not only created humanity, but he created, he created humanity in such a way that he set humanity apart from the rest of creation. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, this is what we read. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we are created in the image of God, which sets us apart from the rest of creation and provides the foundation for what we all refer to as human rights. Um, This, for us, is rooted in the fact that we are created in the image of God. And God also not only created mankind in his image, but he also gave humanity work to do in the world. Look at Genesis 1.28. It says, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So humanity was given the responsibility to fill the earth with other image bearers of God. In other words, have children. And subdue the earth and rule over it. So humanity was given the responsibility to govern the creation on God's behalf. Bruce Ashford explains it this way. He writes, Anytime humans exist together in community, there is the need for government of some type. Before the fall, government would have consisted of some sort of collective ordering of human life, setting schedules, making policies, and so forth. For example, whether or not to drive on the right or the left side of the road, even unfallen humans would have had to decide this. 
His point is that you know, politics, government, is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, even before sin entered the world, humanity would have had to govern themselves in some collective way. And he gave the example of, you know, even, even if you didn't have sin in the world, you still have to figure out which side of the road you're going to need to drive on. Uh, and so that would require some type of public policy. So the answer to the first question, where do we come from, is clear. We come from God. And God has given us the responsibility to image Him or represent Him to the world. But when you look around, it probably wouldn't take you too long to realize, you know what? I don't think we're doing a great job of that. I don't know if we're really imaging God the way He intended. I don't think things are going well. Uh, We don't seem to be imaging Him rightly. And so, what went wrong with the world? And this is the second big question that you need to answer. And the reason that this is such an important question is because the, the way you answer it will inform how you seek to solve the problems around you. You know, I don't have time to discuss all the ways people try to answer this question, but I do want to spend some time giving you the biblical answer to this question. You know, as one theologian put it, God created humanity with a structure and a direction. If you want to think of it this way. So structurally, we're given certain gifts and abilities. uh, And so that's our structure. And then he's given us direction, how we are to use those gifts and abilities. Namely, to love God, to love others, to love the world, take care of the world, rule over the world in an appropriate way, in a righteous way. So that's the direction that we should use all that God has given us. We should use our structure to... um, Love God, love others, love the world. However, Genesis 3 tells us that's not what happened uh, with humanity. We chose to go a different direction. Genesis 3 tells us humanity chose to disobey God. And as you read Genesis 3, you may think, well, uh, that just seems to be an insignificant, disobedient choice. However, the Bible tells us that that choice brought about the complete breakdown of how we relate to God, how we relate to one another, and even how we relate to ourselves and creation. You know, Romans 3.23, over in the New Testament, Paul says, For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. So whatever happened in Genesis 3 has impacted the entire creation, every person in the entire world throughout history, apart from Jesus Christ. And so the, here's the issue now, that sin is in the world. You know, we now have this tendency to worship the creation rather than the creator. We have this tendency now to use people rather than to love people. We have this tendency to see ourselves as the ultimate form of authority and the ultimate arbiter of truth rather than submitting to God. And that first act of disobedience recorded in Genesis 3 impacted the creation as well. Ashford writes, Adam and Eve precipitated brokenness in their relationship with the created order. No longer would would they live in a paradise marked by universal flourishing and delight. Their fall dragged the entire created order into a horrifying downward spiral. And he goes on to say, politics and public life received a strong dose of sin's poison that day. And I think we would all say that's true. (laughs) We can see that. Um, As one theologian puts it, God's creation remains structurally good. Although since the fall, it is directionally corrupt. 
In other words, we still have the ability to think and choose different things and strength and different things like that. Structurally, we're intact to some degree, even though that's, that too has been corrupted by sin. But the biggest corruption comes in the direction, how we live our life, what we build our life upon. Ashford goes on to say that this misdirection can be seen in the fact that God's imagers govern the world imperfectly, often in ways that are unjust, unwise, and unloving. Instead of viewing government as a realm in which we may wisely steward resources, far too often we grasp for power and trample the weak. Instead of using our public voice to bless and enrich others, we spew vitriol and create factions. So simply put, you know, sin has corrupted everything. And it's sin that is ultimately what's wrong with the world, which leads us to our third question, which is, well, how do we fix the problem? How do we deal with the problem that the world is facing? And there are many ways, you can probably think of them, some of them, there are many ways that we have tried to deal with the corruption of sin. You know, some believe that education, uh, science, forms of escapism, or certain political ideologies are ways to somehow usher in a utopia. And God has given, and we're going to talk more about this later, but God has given us ways to kind of mitigate the effects of sin. And we'll talk more about those later on in this series. But nothing can ultimately deal with the problem of sin. You know, we try to manage the symptoms, but we can never bring about the cure. And the Bible tells us that sin can't be fully dealt with apart from God's help. I mean, we need God to come in and deal with our sin problem, that we can't do it on our own, no matter how uh, robust our political engagement may be or how creative our ideas may be, we need God's help to deal with our sin problem, ultimately. Only God has the ability to restore what is broken. And the way God has dealt with our sin problem, the Scripture says, is through the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.3 tells us that Christ died for our sins. And so it's, it's through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that the penalty of sin has been paid and forgiveness and restoration has been made possible for humanity. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this is important to realize that it's, it's in Christ that God is creating a new humanity and a new world. That is coming through Christ and will be fulfilled ultimately when Christ returns. And so, so for those of us who have ex- ex- experienced that restoration that comes through knowing Jesus Christ as our Savior, we see uh, life and approach life with both a realistic view of sin, but we don't fall into despair because we realize God is at work. We know God is at work bringing about this restoration of both humanity and and the world. Which leads to our fourth question, which is, what does the future hold? And you know, there seems to be an assumption that time naturally produces progress. Do you see that? Do you get a feel for that? Like people tend to think, well, as time goes on, we're just going to get better and better. There's this assumption 
that time naturally produces progress. Chuck Colson called this the escalator myth. That we're on this escalator just somehow there's like an invisible hand that's just moving us up this escalator progressively toward a better day. And it's this myth that somehow there's some guarantee that we are moving to this better future. But I wonder, is that an accurate assumption? You know, surely there has been, you know, advances. There have been advances in different areas of life and there will continue to be advances. But I wonder, has there been an advance in the human condition? I mean, has there been an advance to the human heart? You know, is there, is there a difference between how sinful people's hearts are now compared to a thousand years ago? I don't think so. You know, the Bible says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, no matter if you lived in the first century or you live today. So no, no matter what has advanced in forms of medical technology, education, nothing can deal with the human condition at its core, the brokenness and that corruption. And so the reality is, is that the passage of time does not guarantee progress, nor does it offer a cure for the human condition. But for those of us who are in Christ, our hope is not in some assumption of progress. You know, our hope is not ultimately in a particular political party, the passage of certain laws, or the advancement of science and technology, though we will be involved in all those areas of life, and we'll talk about that more later. But we know that none of them are ultimately able to deal with the problem of sin, and they never will be. And our hope is that Jesus will complete what he has started. And when he returns, he will completely bring in what the writer of Hebrews calls the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And so for the Christian, we do have a unique hope and that our hope is not in what the kingdom of man can bring about, but rather our hope is in the kingdom of God and what Christ will bring about in his return. And because of our hope, because our hope is in what Christ will do, we realize the limited ability of government or any other person, institution, technology, or ideology to usher in complete restoration. And at the same time, you know, we're not filled with despair because we know God's at work in the world. So we don't have our hope in the political process, and yet at the same time, we don't fall into the ditch of despair because we know God is at work, and Christ will return and bring about the complete renewal of all things. And so our dependence on God causes us to to navigate our political engagement without becoming hopeless or overly optimistic. So we can avoid both ditches. You know, our motivation for loving our neighbor and seeking the good of community is not that we will usher in some utopia, but rather that we will help people know and experience the grace of God in Christ. And so our motivation is not just to to create a perfect society because we know that's not going to happen apart from Christ returning. But our motivation to love our neighbor is so that people can experience God's love for them, namely through Christ. And so our motivation is not simply to change society, even though we will be involved in changing society. Our motivation ultimately is not about changing society. Our motivation ultimately is about loving God and loving other people so they can do the same. 
And so whether society gets better or worse, our motivation remains the same. And that we want to love God, love people, help people experience that as well, and be able to live that out as well. And so this motivation of love obviously shows itself in how we treat one another. And by extension, it's going to inform how we you know, engage in the political process and creation of policy and the passing of laws and voting for candidates, etc. But remember, you know, this, this branch of political involvement, of politics in our society, grows from the tree that is rooted or nurtured by this root system that answers those big four questions that we just mentioned. Richard John Newhouse, remember he said, you know, culture is the root of politics and the root of culture is religion. So what you believe about your origin, the problem, the solution, and the future will be the root system that will produce the fruit of your life and will determine how you engage in the political process. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus who would call themselves Christian, you know what guides how we engage, how we engage in the political process and every other area of our life, what guides us is our relationship with God through Christ. I mean, that is what guides us. That's what motivates us. That's what gives us direction. And so let me just ask you this question. Think about your own life. You know, what is guiding you? I mean, what is giving you direction and how you engage in the different aspects of life? Because what you need to realize is that what I have said about the world, what is true of the world, is true of you. That God created you to have a personal relationship with Him. But you are separated from God because of sin. Sin has brought about that separation. And the only solution to your sin problem is what Jesus has accomplished for you through His death and resurrection. It's only by placing your faith in Jesus Christ that you can enter a right relationship with God. It's only by believing in Christ that you can experience restoration both now and forever. And it's only through Jesus that God is creating this new humanity and this new world that will go on forever. So here's what I want you to realize. What will determine your eternity is not who you will vote for in November. But rather, what will determine your eternity is who will you trust for your eternal future. Is it Christ? Or are you placing your trust in something else? You know, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, if you've never decided to follow Jesus, I want to invite you to do so right now. And you can make that decision by praying to God and expressing that desire to God through prayer. And if you want to give your life to Christ, I want you to repeat the following prayer. Just make it your own. And this is actually a prayer that's printed on the next step card in your pew in front of you if you'd like to take one with you. But if you've never given your life to Christ and you are sitting there and you want to make that decision, I want to become a follower of Jesus, then I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I admit that I've been living my life apart from you. I now recognize that I'm a sinner and that forgiveness can only be found in you. 
Thank You for dying on the cross for my sins. And Jesus, I desire that You become my Savior and Lord. Lord, and that I want to follow You. And Savior, and that You are the only one that can give eternal life. I now turn to You and ask that You come into my life and make me the kind of person You want me to be. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer and you've made that decision to follow Christ, I want to encourage you to take the next step, and that is baptism. And we're going to celebrate baptism on November the 1st, that Sunday. So if you would like to take that next step, let me know. I'd love to tell you more about it, give you all the details. And also, if you've placed your faith in Christ, I want to encourage you to tell somebody today that you've made that decision to follow Jesus. Also, I have one more thing I want you all to do this morning. Uh, I want you to grab one of these American flags, if you haven't already. They're out there in the vestibule. These are for you. Uh, Adults, children, everybody can have one. And here's what I want you to do uh, with these. I want you to put it somewhere that you'll see it every day. Okay, Just place it somewhere where you'll see it. And I want it to serve as a reminder to pray. To pray for our country. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're thankful for God and how He's working in the, in the world. We're thankful for how He's working in our country. Uh, but we also look around we know there are some challenges uh, in our country. And we know, obviously, during an election season, uh, things tend to get amplified and ramped up. And as Christians, we're called to pray for our leadership. And so we want to do that intentionally. And so what I want you to do is I want to take one, of, take one of these flags, place it where you see it every day. And in the back of your worship guide, Terrell and Baker has done just a fantastic job putting together a prayer guide for us. Just to pray for our country and the people of our country, the leadership of our country. Um, every day from October through the election in November, uh, there is something you can pray for intentionally. And there's a scripture that goes along with that prayer that will help guide your prayer. And so I just want to encourage you uh, to join me as we pray for our country uh, as we move forward to this November election. And we'll continue through this series, and hopefully this series will be informative uh, as not only do we pray, but also how we are involved as followers of Jesus in the political process. So let's go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare to sing our final hymn. Father, we, we do thank you for the ability to come to you in prayer. Lord, we do lift up our country. We pray that you would help us as uh, citizens of your kingdom and citizens of this country to represent you well. Guide us and direct us as we move forward that you would be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.